0: Stuck in the middle of a snowstorm with no way to get your bike home? Try this trick from Wisebread.com. Secure zip ties at even intervals around your bike's wheels to create bike snow tires, and you'll get plenty of grip on the snow on your way home. The holidays are wonderful because they distract you from the miserable weather that makes you have to do things like this. But make no mistake, it is getting colder out, and the minute the holidays are over, wham, you're out in the snow with your nose hairs all frozen trying to put zip ties on your bike tires. That's why we decided to do a special Winter Coat Spectacular this episode, because if you're wearing the right coat, there's no winter weather you can't handle. First up, we talked to Nick Myers, director of the Mount Shasta Avalanche Center out in California, and, incidentally, a former Popular Mechanics cover model. Nick spends a lot of time rescuing folks from conditions they were not prepared for, so he tells us how to match your clothing to your activity. After that, we talked to Gary Smith, the CEO of Polartech, about the differences between different types of technical fabrics, and all the ways Polartech tests coats with soldiers from the Special Forces. I should note here that what he says about special forces may make you thankful for your boring desk job. We don't want to make you feel too sad that we've got a long way to go until summer. So there's also some weird and crazy stuff on this episode. For example, Kevin calls the actual Orkin man for help with something called a super mouse. And we also test a crazy fitness device that looks like a ping pong ball attached to a drill. The holidays are coming, y'all, and so is some really gnarly weather. Throw on a pot of cider and bust out your web browser. I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and the most useful podcast ever is in the market for a brand new coat. So for our jacket spectacular, now that it is freezing outside, we thought we would call Nick Myers, who is the lead climbing ranger and director of the Mount Shasta Avalanche Center out in California. Hi, Nick. Hello. Nick has also been on the cover of Popular Mechanics. What was that, two years ago?
1: I think so, yeah. Yeah. And then he was one of our GoPro subjects for wearing the camera for an entire day. You've done a lot of nice things for us. Hey, yeah,
2: you guys are making me famous.
0: <laughs> You're like a friend of the magazine. <laughs> so Nick, you are cold a lot, presumably. <laughs> or in correct? the cold a lot, maybe. I am. And we wanted to talk about jackets because it's getting really cold. And for you, what do you wear when you go out to work? Do you have a bunch of different jackets or do you just have like one go-to or what do you have?
2: I honestly have a bunch of different jackets and I'll generally pick the jacket that, you know, is going to best suit the activities. You know, in my job, I'm outside a lot and exercising and moving a lot. And so with that, the idea is that you're creating some warmth and getting the blood moving and maybe even sweating a little bit. And so it's really important for me to be able to regulate my body temperature quickly and easily. So the jacket that I generally take is like a heavy duty shell type jacket. has a couple pockets, you know, just down like hand pockets and then one chest pocket. It's a waterproof shell that essentially goes over the rest of my layers. So whatever I've got underneath, whether it's a down jacket and some fleece and some polypropylene or something, it's going over the top of all of that stuff. And I can adjust my layers underneath. If it's raining out or windy or whatever, I still can put my shell on over the top.
0: How many layers are you talking about generally? <laughs> I think that sounded like a lot of layers to me.
2: Yeah, so there's kind of a set of four layers that I carry with me all the time, and I can get through just about any conditions with, and that is the poly propylene base layer, a thin base layer that you'd wear right on your skin. On top of that, sometimes put a fleece, so like kind of an insulating layer on top of that. Then if it's really cold, I put a uh, down kind of puffy jacket or it could be synthetic on top of the fleece and then the shell on top of that. So when conditions are really bad, if I have all four of those layers on included with a hat and gloves and all that, And granted that you're moving, you can stay pretty darn warm. If we're sitting still in a snow cave, that's a different story.
0: I feel like that's not a statement you hear that often. We're (laughs) we're just sitting still in (laughs) the snow cave. Or
2: stranded or something like that.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, what do you guys do when you go out in this gear and you're expecting moving and then maybe you do get to a point where you're stuck for an hour or something? What do you do to stay warm in those situations?
2: Yeah, so in a situation like that, I would just adjust one of those base layers, perhaps wear a little bit thicker of a fleece or... Or oftentimes I'll just bring a thicker down jacket and that would help insulate a little bit better if it was really cold or if you're planning on being in one spot and not moving a lot.
0: Do you have any brands that are your go-to that might help people pick out what they're going to get?
2: Most of our stuff is either Patagonia or Arcteryx.
0: I heard one time, like, there's no such thing as bad weather, there's just bad clothing. Right. So if you got to go out in something really gnarly, like rain, for example, what do you wear then?
2: You know, I still will bring my shell. And especially when conditions are really wet, layering is the key. And having a good outer shell, your jacket, that's what protects all your layers underneath. You can always adjust your layers, but that shell needs to be bomber and needs to be able to keep the rain out. And so I don't really adjust much if it's going to be ultra wet. Where I might adjust is, you know, you have your jacket that you're going to use when you're doing stuff that involves exercise and creating body heat. So having a shell maybe even slightly larger in size since it's going to be going over all your clothes, having some vents in your armpit areas. And really kind of a no-frills jacket. And then the other jacket may be, for lack of a better description, your town jacket. Certainly you might do other stuff and go out on the town. But your town jacket maybe has a few more frills. It could be a little more true to size. Say you're just going to go out for a bit. You just put it on over a short sleeve or something like that. And it may have a little bit more insulation. So it's something that you can put on and be warm without having to wear a bunch of layers.
0: So if you're rescuing somebody, for example, how often are these people poorly dressed and what would you recommend to hikers or climbers or people who are going to go out in the winter to not make the same mistakes as the people you end up having to help?
2: Oftentimes people are not prepared. That can take on the form of not prepared with their clothing. It can be not prepared with their skills and they can be not prepared with knowing how to use their equipment So all those things are equally important to make a successful climb of Mount Shasta. And then you add winter into the mix, and we always tell people that a winter climb of Mount Shasta or any mountain in the world significantly ups the ante. And wintertime often brings poor weather, so therefore rescue is often not available or extremely difficult or may take longer. So do the homework, you know, if you don't know how to use an ice axe and crampons, practice on a smaller hill. As far as clothing goes, making sure to have the proper clothing. And yeah, it's expensive, and yeah, you might have to go buy a new jacket, but this is stuff that can really make the difference out in the wilderness. And then as far as experience goes and gaining that knowledge, you know, you have to go out. You're gonna be a novice at some point. So it's okay to go out and make mistakes, but just make sure you've gone over in your mind how you're gonna deal with those things, whether it's a medical emergency or exposure, emergency or navigation or what have you. You know, there's a lot of different aspects of a trip that can go wrong and having a plan of how to deal with something if if something does happen.
0: Right. Very handy advice and true kind of everywhere.
2: All of this stuff that I've been mentioning applies to all aspects of life and adventure. It doesn't have to be necessarily just up on Shasta or whatever. Thinking about consequences and how you're going to deal.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks and uh, have a safe and warm winter.
2: Thanks, you guys. Happy holidays.
0: So we have with us for our winter coat spectacular, Gary Smith, CEO of Polar Tech. And we wanted to talk to you because we figured you would be the expert on what actually goes on inside various coats. So to start with, what kind of coat do you wear?
3: Well, I have lots of coats. And so I tend to think of them in terms of shoes. You know, there's lots of different use occasions. So it really comes down to what am I going to be doing? What kind of conditions am I going to encounter? Or if I really don't know what kind of conditions I'm going to encounter, that would also change my mind about what I would bring.
0: What if it's really, really cold? If I go into a store, I want the warmest thing there is that like feels like a blanket and I can just feel like I'm in a comforter the entire time I'm outside. What kind of thing are you looking for? Is it down? Is it something that you guys make? I mean, what kind of thing keeps you
3: warmest? If you're just looking for something that's going to keep you warm and it's really cold, then obviously something with a fill insulation, whether it's down or synthetic fill alternatives, is going to give you the maximum amount of warmth. You know, you just said comforter. It's essentially a comforter for your body.
4: When my girlfriend and I go away for the weekend and we want to just pack one duffel bag, she gets cold really easily and she always has to bring like seven layers in the bulkiest sweaters I've ever seen. And I've been on a quest to find like what I think is a unicorn, which is a really warm jacket where she won't need a bunch of other layers and then actually I can jam into a duffel bag and doesn't take up a lot of space.
3: Yeah, that's increasingly, I mean, with modern technology, you can have a tremendous amount of warmth without weight and you can get some decent compressibility so you can mitigate that. A lot of the modern synthetic fills have a relatively high amount of compressibility to them. You don't need to start out looking like the Michelin man. <laughs> <laughs> the other factor is, are you going to generate any of your own body heat? So obviously if you're just walking around shopping in Manhattan or going in and out of stores, you know that's one thing, but you'll see folks carrying those when they're inside because they overheat fairly quickly because they don't do a good job of exhausting body heat.
0: Right. Are there certain words to look for when you're shopping for a coat, like impermeable versus water resistant versus sweat wicking or breathability? I mean, are there actual industry-wide standards that anyone adheres to?
3: Unfortunately, no. And that leads to a lot of confusion on the part of the consumer. And so let's take, for example, so-called waterproof breathables. They're not actually breathable in the sense that you and I as human beings breathe air. They will move moisture from the the outside, but only if you build up a pressure differential. And so you look at something and you say, "Well, breathable." That implies that there's some measure of comfort, air transfer, but it doesn't really happen. And so those types of garments are fine if you're in the conditions that they were designed for. But if you're not, if you're doing anything in between, or you're generating any kind of body heat yourself, they're going to become fairly uncomfortable fairly quickly. It tends to be the first mover in a given space. Gets looks like it would exchange air, but at the same time, trap air when necessary to keep you warm. That's stuff that I would look for.
0: Okay. How many coats would you say the average active outdoors person should own?
3: It's a very difficult question to answer because if you think about the way the outdoor apparel industry has evolved, it's the classic three-part layering system, right? You have something next to your skin or a base layer. You have a mid-layer insulating piece, and then you typically have some sort of weather protection shell as the third piece. More often than not, your mid-layer is your outerwear because you're typically only wearing that shell if it's absolutely necessary. If you talk about jackets, you know, at a minimum, you should have something that's you know, an insulating piece and then something that has a high degree of weather protection. Nowadays, there's plenty of technology out there where you can buy one jacket that has both, but the key being if it's not really breathable, truly air permeable, it doesn't really work as a twofer because oftentimes you're going to take your shell off if you don't need your shell so that you can have that higher level of comfort which is really all about the breathability
4: aspect of it. From a scientific standpoint, you know, even PolarTech Tech on your guys' website, you have the fabrics organized into base, insulation, protection. Just in broad strokes, what's technically different between a fabric for a base versus for insulation versus for protection?
3: So if you're talking about a cold-weather layering system, the base layer that you want next to your skin... Or whatever it might be, that evaporative cooling effect could create hypothermia at some point, especially if you had to stop for any reason. So the ability to pick up moisture from the skin and move it away from the skin as quickly as possible, that's absolutely critical on a cold weather base layer, keeping you dry next to your skin and then moving it away and out to the outside of the garment, that's key. When you start to move into the insulating layer, obviously you want something that with a minimal amount of bulk traps the maximum amount of air for insulating purposes air is what actually insulates you, not the garment per se. And so if you can orient something through fiber and through construction, that traps a maximum amount of air, but also has fibers oriented in a way and engineered in a way where it picks up that moisture from the base layer and can continue to move it externally through the package. That's a winner. And then when you get to your shell, your third layer, your weather protection layer, true air permeability is key, not just a, a claim of breathability and you know, waterproof. Garments for hundreds of years, but in a modern context, in a lamination system, being able to not only keep you dry from the outside, but able to move air through the package against so you, keep that internal moisture moving through the system, so it gets to the outside and dries and keeps you comfortable.
0: So, how do you test these things?
3: We work with the U.S. military as well as commercial accounts, and one thing that's great about the U.S. military is they can do things to soldiers that civilians are not subjected to. So. <laughs> It takes the soldier to walk the entire package dry.
0: Wow! When your
3: gear is up to that type of a challenge, then you know you've got something that certainly is going to be fine for any commercial application.
0: Right, yeah, for the guy who's going camping and just got rained on a little bit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, and have a happy winter. Same to you. Our fact master Eleanor Hildebrand is here again for uh, new facts, your favorite facts, Acrobat
5: facts, Acrobat facts.
1: So like Adobe PDF facts.
0: No, the fun
5: kind. That is you don't think fun Adobe kind. Acrobat is fun? <laughs> the more fun kind, okay. as thrilling as Adobe Acrobat is.
1: It'd be pretty hard for her to find four <laughs> Adobe facts.
5: What counts as an Acrobat? A person A in tights ac- who
1: jumps. Okay. Well, right? that's if you have tight like a ballerina
5: on. then. That's acrobatic. That's true. I think it's it's something I couldn't do that's okay. acrobatic because that means low bar. But no,
1: but <laughs> wouldn't an acrobat? You could do a cartwheel <laughs> that's
5: acrobatic. <laughs> Maybe. So are, he's a gymnast and acrobat? I think like so. In the yeah. Venn diagram
0: of acrobats, gymnasts isn't gymnast, that? like is rope work concerns, walkers. Let's okay. yes.
5: But today I did a deep dive on the World Pizza Games. What? Is, which is how is are it? you going to tie this together? It's an <laughs> annual competition in Las Vegas every March. And there are five categories, and one of them is freestyle acrobatic dough tossing. Wow. And it's literally acrobatic routines, five to ten minutes set to music. Like
1: instead of that ribbon, they, they, have, they have dough. Pizzas. But it
5: like, that it, sounds amazing. It's, it does sound This cool is to my watch. only fact because I spent so much time watching the YouTube <laughs> videos. It's do they do like backflips? Yeah, they're backflips. Sometimes what? they're blindfolded. And the pizza dough, like, stretches out. So they, like, cool. switch out the dough. If they have, like, 10 oh, different if it gets dough balls. big, you exactly. grab Exactly. Do
0: they then cook it into. I mean, like, what's no, included you in the judging? You wouldn't want to eat that. <laughs> oh, so it gets on I their feet. It's, it's
5: just like but if it, it's. But it gets a good on a regular routine. pizza
1: man's hand. Yeah, right?
5: but they're not, like, doing they're touching like, the ground and stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe discount.
5: Discount pizzas. <laughs> this is an acrobat pizza. I don't know yeah, if you like want it's it. has
1: been touched by feet. And
0: How did you find this?
5: That's a good question, but aren't you glad that I did? <laughs> I'm so glad that you did. So there are 30 days left to register for the 2018 games.
1: Should we enter Eleanor and the pizza? <laughs>
5: yes. <laughs> yes. Do you have to qualify? You have to work for like a pizza restaurant or pizza making place and oh. you have to pay like $60 to enter. We it. have time to get you a job. <laughs> There's the new pizza place
1: in the mall under the subway next to us. Oh, that's right. And they do like spinning this flaming pizzas. This is taking pizzas.
5: a turn I did not. It is <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: what happens when you only bring one fact <laughs> you, <gotta laughs>
5: you bring one fact you get farmed out to a pizza place the next thing you know you're doing back lips while i throwing mean, dough first place is a thousand dollars you you know that's not, 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 not a buy a
1: lot of new tights for your acrobatic <laughs> exactly. <routine>.
5: i don't <laughs> think you have to wear tights <laughs> if you want to be an acrobat <laughs> by you our really definition should, though. Yeah. that's your fact <laughs> that's and that's my <laughs> fact.
0: and that's been acrobat facts So we have with us John Kane, who is with ORKIN. He's an entomologist. He has like a cool title, doesn't he? Isn't it some sort of like urban entomologist? Urban entomologist, I believe. is that right, That's John? Amazing.
6: That's correct. Urban and industrial entomologist.
0: Which, uh, what does that mean exactly?
6: Basically, I'm one of the chief scientists for ORKIN. I cover nine states. I serve as their division technical director for the Midwest, as well as their science guy.
0: So we are calling you with a very specific problem, Kevin has maybe a mouse.
4: And I think it's smarter than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I definitely have a mouse. I mean, I found mouse droppings. And uh, I moved to a new apartment recently. So we moved in. The mice had been around, I think, because it was empty for a month or something. I caught one mouse really soon after I moved in, but the second mouse has been driving me crazy. I've used the sort of traditional trap. I've used spin traps. I've used the ones that are like black plastic clips it seems to outsmart all of these traps. I've been using cheese for bait, and then I switched to peanut butter. Over mm. the weekend, I switched to bacon, and it stole bacon off one of the traditional traps and did not trigger yeah. it. Yes. What am I doing <laughs> wrong? <laughs> That's a smart mouse. It
6: doesn't sound like you're doing anything wrong. Mice are amazing. They're absolutely survivors. And by and large, they're usually curious animals, but that rule doesn't hold true for all of them. So some of them might be cautious, and it sounds like you have a cautious mouse. I have encountered cases where, quote-unquote, super mice that just avoid every single trap. You can even put out infrared cameras and watch what they do over- overnight, and they'll just carefully walk around everything, jump over things, and never touch the trap. It can be amazing. Wow. But that being said, there are ways to defeat them. <laughs> uh, it, it can just take a little time.
4: That's definitely how I'm thinking about it now. It's like, this is an opponent. This isn't a, <laughs> this isn't a rodent.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of things to do. Figuring out where they got in is a good one. You don't want more to get it. So the gas supply line for a stove is a frequent offender. Sometimes there is a hole. We call it a pipe chase. A contractor drills a bigger hole than what they need, and it ends up allowing a mouse to be able to wriggle through. And mice only need about a quarter of an inch of space to wriggle their bodies through.
4: How is that even possible?
6: They kind of squeeze and readjust, and I I recommend Googling it sometimes. And so, sealing up any small holes around pipe chases, like a gas supply line, or for the washer dryer, if, if you have one, or a radiator. There's often chases around there. So now that you've sealed those up, now you've got a disrupted mouse that might no longer have his path open. Now you need to capture that mouse. The rule of thumb is, if you think you have one mouse, you want to put out six to 12 traps. And the second thing that really works well for rodents is something called pre-baiting. You earn their confidence slowly. So over a period of a couple days, you put out those traps and you put a variety of food. Because this mouse may just not like peanut butter. Peanut butter does work very well, typically. So I'd be surprised. But it's possible that the mouse just doesn't like it. Well, he does so,
0: like the bacon, seems.
6: Yeah, I use bacon as a bait myself. And sometimes I'll cook up some bacon just so that I can store the grease for purpose of enticing rodents. So you can enhance your trap by making it smell good. You can rub some bacon oil or grease along on the trigger plate, and they'll just be more likely to investigate it. So you got maybe a couple traps with peanut butter, a couple with some chocolate. Chocolate syrup is reported to work pretty well. Oh, There's, there's other options, macadamia, nut paint. I select the finer things? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, yeah.
0: this mouse is getting a whole smorgasbord there. <laughs> right
6: Sometimes you want to have something for pregnant female mice, just in case. There's a period where they're not really eating food, so they're only looking for nesting material, and they'll kind of turn their noses up at food. So, um, a, a little piece of cotton ball attached, you know, maybe glue it to your trigger plate I've never of a, a heard snap this trap. Mm-hmm.
0: What if you got a pregnant female? You're going to have more little smart the more, The more I <laughs>
4: learn about how intelligent and curious the mice are, the less I want to kill it. It's actually making yeah. me a little sad. I know.
6: Yeah. Well, it is amazing. I'm a biologist, and that's how I got into it. It was fascination. But, you know, just to counterbalance the awe factor, mice reproduce a lot. And so in a single year, you can go from a pregnant female, and conservatively, you can end up with 4,000 mice, if all of them lived, if all of her babies 4, lived.
4: 4,000?
6: Yeah, and that's, conservatively, the average litter size might be six or seven mice, and she'll do that every maybe nine weeks. And then her babies will start having babies and et cetera. Now, they can have as many as 10, 11 pups per litter. And if that happens, you can have as much as 25,000 mice in a year.
0: That's too many mice. Yeah, that's a lot of <laughs> mice. And
6: so in nature out there, the reason they have so many babies is they're dying left and right. And that's why they're so secretive. They're prey animals. They are eaten by a lot of different things. And that's mm-hmm. why they have so many babies.
4: So, Is there one type of trap that you recommend?
6: You know what's amazing is that it's a tried-and-true yellow uh, Victor Snap Trap. Woodstream works really well. That's the one you find in in most stores. You want an expanded trigger plate. They can be very sensitive, so it, it can take a light touch when you're putting them down. They can set themselves off. And you had mentioned that the mouse was able to get the food off without setting it off. I have put out multiple traps with peanut butter on it. The mouse cleaned off five of the traps before the sixth trap finally sprung. That's how light a touch mice can have as they're collecting the food.
0: This is amazing. This is the art of <laughs> war, Kevin. I, know. This is like I, know. I feel
4: like I'm working up a full psychological profile of this. <laughs> <laughs> you know your enemy.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. What about getting a cat? Should Kevin just get a cat? <laughs>
6: Your success there might not be what you are hoping for. The cat might ignore it, especially domesticated cats with plenty of food.
0: How
4: long does a mouse live? By the way, I was wondering this because I was really—I've been despairing. Like maybe I'll never catch it. And I just have to wait till it dies. <laughs> right. How long does it well, take? You,
6: I think if you try some of these, you will catch it. It might take some patience, and also the variety of food lures, like I mentioned, as well as nesting material. As a pet, I think you'll get as much as maybe two years out of a mouse. I think the longest ever reported was about oh, it's four years, but that's really bizarre. In the wild, you're probably looking at maybe six months,
0: okay? Because
6: it's just nature out there is really, really rough.
0: Well, you're the most knowledgeable person about mice I've ever met. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's always more to learn. Well, thank you for talking to us. Good luck with your endeavors, and may you never encounter another mouse like Kevin's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
6: Thank you Same so much. Here. You're very welcome and then have a great holiday. You too. <laughs> you as
4: well.
0: Peter Martin has a bunch of chair problems. I think we were one. calling... bunch of chair, chairs, one problem. bunch of chairs, just one problem. I was calling this Peter Martin and the chairs and the felt things problem segment. So what? Uh, what is your problem?
1: So we bought new chairs for our dining room table because we only had two for a very long time, which makes it hard to have people over. And... What is this
0: table? You just had like one on either side of the table?
1: Pretty much. It was just (laughs) two of us. So we would just sit there at the table. We had two old chairs that we pulled around the table and that was it. But now we have eight. But it's hardwood floors. And even though they have the little plastic tabs on the bottom when you slide them in and out, they still leave marks on the floors. And we've only lived there for a year. So I'm still very...
0: Paranoid about, <laughs> just yeah. crazy
1: about any kind of marks on anything. Uh-huh. So usually you buy the little felt tabs that you can get at the hardware store. It's like five bucks. You cut them out of a square, stick them on the bottom of the chairs, and that works. Problem with this is those came off in like the first twenty minutes of having them.
0: Right, which I think is a common problem. I feel like we were talking about this and other people in the office. Were like oh yeah, that's, that's, but nobody
1: has a good solution, which really bothers me.
0: Yeah, did you just like put tape on them? <laughs> I have no idea. That was not one of the things I tried. <laughs> Maybe that's like the, the key. Who did you go to? How did you try to figure this out?
1: We checked with. Since we share a floor with HDTV, we talked to them. I thought, if anybody knows the trick to this, it is them. They did not. Oh. So I also so, wrote. So then nobody knows the <laughs> answer to this. Well, and I thought we got them from West Elm, which is a furniture store. And I emailed them thinking, you guys sell chairs to everybody. You're going to be really helpful. And they wrote back and did not have a clue either, which surprised me. So I was on my own. But I found a few options just online, and then also my wife and I talked about it and kind of guessed a few options because you can pretty yeah, straightforward like, you figure it out. Like
0: here's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a monkey with a tool. You're like, okay, here's the problem. The ants are over there, and I need to eat them. So,
1: so I tried a couple of different things. One option was to super glue the tabs to the bottom of the Uh-oh, plastic. Uh huh. To super glue these the felt the, to the these bottom. These
0: are the felt ones. Okay.
1: Yeah, and the other option you can actually take the plastic tabs off and then just put the felt tabs right on the bottom of the chair. So we just put it right on the metal. Of the chair.
0: Okay, oh, these are metal chairs. That probably makes a difference, because I feel like wood is a little more porous, stickier. Right, like, wood, like-
1: you can buy these things that you actually just tack up into the bottom of the chair and then there's felt on them, so oh, you take smart. off the things that come with it, tack it right up. But since it's metal, I could have tried to find ones that fit the exact hole size of the I don't really want to spend all that time online trying to find these things. Mm -hmm. Some people put like woven socks, like they'll knit little socks. Whoa. Looks pretty bad.
0: Chair socks. Yeah, that sounds bad.
1: And then there are plastic caps that you can put on too that also look pretty ugly. It's like having a plastic cover on your couch. If we had that, then it'd be fine to add them to right, the chairs. Right, right.
0: Like, if you care so little about the appearance of your apartment that you're willing to do these things, have at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then why own. would you care about well, your floor? You, you could maybe, I don't know, if you're like a really, it could really hip, you could crochet your own like cool chair socks maybe. somehow. I'm I am not
1: really hip. I couldn't do that. Yeah. But our two options really worked well. So I think I've so solved this both. for everybody. Yeah. Okay. And this morning I slid around on the chairs as much as I could. You slid
0: around on the chairs. <laughs> I
1: had to sort of rush this test because I forgot to do it until last night.
0: Uh huh. So take the plastic things off.
1: So that was the one option: sand off a little bit of the paint that's just on the bottom of the metal, just to give it a little bit of grip, and then just put the. It has its own stickiness. I didn't want to super glue it to the bottom in case it's a bad move, and then case, we're stuck with uh-huh. that thing on there. But the adhesive on the bottom of the felt worked great, and that's there. And then the super glue on the bottom of the plastic tab also worked, but then it's taller. It looks a little uglier i think with taking the tab off you can also if you cut it exactly to the bottom of the thing you don't really see it as much mm-hmm. so that was the one that worked so cool. yeah. so if you're scratching your floors take off the little plastic tabs easier than i thought i thought they were built in or super glued on themselves but they're usually just stuck in a tab on the bottom so pull them off the pliers sand it a little bit and then stick the tab on the bottom there so problem solved stop yeah. wrecking your floors yeah now i can have people over
0: What is that thing?
7: Sounds like a power
4: tool, doesn't it? It looks like a hand mixer that Jack Bauer rigged up to torture a suspect.
0: Yeah, it really does look like a torture device. That is insane. It looks like a reciprocating saw with a Nerf yeah, ball on it. Yeah, but that's
7: harder than a Nerf ball. So you hold it in your hand, and on the other end is it's this ball that goes up and down very, very quickly. And so you put it over your muscles or sore muscles, and as the pitch is from the guy who invented it, the ball moves up and down on your muscle. At a frequency that achieves a similar effect to foam rolling, you know, where you put pressure on something or, like, getting a really tough massage on sore muscles. Okay. But without actually activating the pain receptors or making it hurt the way oh, that sounds good it's supposed to do that same thing and so that you know the endorsements are from like athletes who need to boost their recovery time the guy's story is that i think he had a motorcycle accident and he was looking for a way to help himself heal more quickly and i thought it was kind of okay it's an interesting idea we see a lot of nonsense medical devices that come through the office
5: yeah
0: but
7: i was looking into it, and you see these photos of guys on the sidelines at nfl games using using it,
0: it. and what's this thing called
7: thera gun thera gun
0: all well, that's a word. good name for it. It looks kind of like a weird gun. Yeah. That is a really serious piece of equipment. How much does this thing
7: cost? It's expensive. 600 bucks. Oh, my God. It basically is like a power tool until you actually see how you're supposed to use it. So you squeeze the... It's mean, yeah.
0: like an adjustable front, so you can make it point out like a straight gun or point kind of down. Yeah. I have a tight IT band, so we're going to try that. Here we go. I don't know. That hurts.
7: Don't put pressure on it. He was telling me you just kind of hold it against your skin and just let it do its thing. Okay. You don't have to push in or anything okay. like that.
0: If I don't push in, it's less painful. Right. I think I just have a really tight IT band.
7: <laughs> try it somewhere else. Maybe it's better there. Let's
0: try it on this IT band. Oh, see, that side doesn't hurt. So, yeah. Clearly, my right? So, you're is just really, a you are really
7: tight in this side. Yeah. So, the idea is that it sends all these things to your ailing part to help it rebuild and make it work better, but without the pain of like a really intense massage or like, you, yeah, just doing foam rolling. It's... Oh,
0: that feels great. And so,
4: right now, <laughs> now, Jackie has, it's like a ping pong ball sized tip, but it looks like there's multiple tips. Yeah,
7: they have different ones. So, there's one that's like a, a cone that looks real oh, hardcore. That looks like it. There's another one really that's, hurt. like a clown nose size kind of thing. And then there's this other the clown one. clown nose kind of a- <laughs> Try this one. This one's like it's like a
0: That's like a tangerine. Oh, this yeah.
7: is neat. I think that would probably be the most gentle. So it'll it's kind so of it looks a thing it'll collapse a little bit.
0: Yeah, it looks like one of those things you just like squeeze mucus out of a baby's nose.
7: I'm talking about yeah, like yeah, yeah, those yeah. things. It not about bottles. Those.
0: Yeah, squeeze but yeah,
7: yeah. Or whatever those things are. So then you can put on those different ones everyone who's tried it has kind of liked it and says it feels real good. It feels really and it, great. I guess the science seems pretty valid. The motor feels real powerful. And it feels like you could drop that thing a couple of times. It would still work. It's oh, like yeah. a real solid, like a Milwaukee drill I would or something say it like It feels that. like Milwaukee it's something. It's got
4: like a battery packs and a charging station that look like batteries for like a Makita.
0: It does seem like it might be hard to do on yourself in certain places. That yeah. would be something I'd maybe say because like a lot of people have back problems. How are you going to do this on your back? You know, you could. Yeah. But uh, I think maybe be helpful if you have a friend or significant other or a coach or somebody Like who's... tape
7: it to a banister and like a grizzly bear. Yeah. do it that way, yeah. I definitely would not delude myself in thinking that I use my body enough to make that thing useful. I very superficially understand the signs of like why you're sore or whatever. But the impression I get is that when you're really at something like, like those Olympic athletes in training we had that issue a while ago where it's the recovery is a huge part of it and you got to attenuate the recovery time as much as possible. I think it's marketed primarily towards that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is good. I actually was taking a class the other night in an exercise class and the woman who was running it was like some girl was having some trouble with her legs or something and she was like do you have a good body worker like everyone should have a good body worker and I was like I don't have a good body worker is that a thing it seems like the awareness is kind of coming up like as people are working out super hard they're doing races Mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of running whatever Like you can't just go 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 and never take care of your muscles and then like everything will be fine like you're gonna get injured
4: I'm really bad about stretching and I do have back problems And when I was in physical therapy my physical therapist is like, foam rolling is more important than stretching. He's like, you should be foam rolling like every day. Yeah. And if I could replace that horrible feeling of foam rolling with this... Oh,
0: yeah. I would honestly probably pay $600 to replace the horrible... Yeah, and it's way like cheaper a than a bodywork. That. No, that's true. I've looked into it. It's the same prices as massages. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. So, Kevin, would you buy this thing?
4: $600 is a lot. You and I have talked about this, actually, that we're thinking of doing the 9 plus 1 thing for mm-hmm. the marathon. What's 9 plus 1?
0: So in New York City, to get into the New York City Marathon, which is a race that is much Beloved and difficult to get into. You can run nine races in one year and then volunteer at one.
6: Oh, that's how you call. And you're given
0: yeah, guaranteed entry for the following year. If you're somebody who lives here and you're very involved in the running community, yeah, then, you, get a then, you, then you can get away in. Yeah, okay, but basically,
4: it. so I think I'm gonna do that next year, which means nine races over twelve months. Like my race frequency is gonna get higher. I'm probably if I stretch at the rate I'm stretching now, I'm gonna die. Right. So <laughs> I'm gonna
0: actually just <laughs> die.
4: So this is pretty appealing in that situation. It's it's still a lot of money, but I think. At the point where I was doing something like that kind of frequency of races and like yeah. serious workouts, then it seems to me
7: like it's probably a good investment.
0: Yeah, Alex, what do you think?
7: I don't think I'm the demographic for it, but whenever it's I look at some video
0: gaming, you could use it on your thumbs,
7: so I don't have to have that wrist thing that maybe <laughs> like pro gamers carp- use. Carpal, yeah. carpal tunnel, it happens. So. Yeah, the repetitive motion from something like that. Remember the Hitachi magic wand that like was oh, <laughs> supposed yeah. to be for like massaging yourself? And it's like this is not that far from that idea. But I am a little bit convinced by this whole thing about, like, the frequency of the articulation that's going into it. And, yeah, I think it seems like a good idea.
0: I've said this before on this podcast. Physical therapists are brilliant. If you get mm-hmm. a good one, you'll be like, everything hurts. And they'll press on, like, one thing and it's like an, a button. And they're just yeah. like, oh, you're fine now. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody knows what they're doing and they create something like this, I'll use it, you know. Yeah. So vibration seems like it's pretty cool. Yeah. Should we make, like, a massage train? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. It's very threatening the way you did that right there. (laughs) That's our show, y'all. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.